Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. Our party of monks and lay people, both Burmese and Western, and me, arrived in Rangoon, or Yangon, on February 5th, 2009. Outside the air terminal, we encountered the churning masses of small cars, motorcycles with stuffed trailers, bicycles overloaded with families and wares, dogs rusted out buses with missing windows, peopled both within and atop, and a disarray of small vehicles at the curb in front of the terminal, haphazardly absorbing people and baggage. Our party shuffled out to the curb, one of the few curbs in Myanmar, and strangers began relieving us of our baggage, things disappearing in one direction or another, including my bag, for all I knew into the hands of outlaws and sneaks, while still other strangers herded the non-monks among us, including this Zen priest, into the back of a small pickup outfitted with all-too-tiny benches under an all-too-low canopy over the all-too-small bed, forcing all-too-lanky American knees to face level. The truck into which we had squeezed zoomed forth through streets amassed with people, bicycles, small vehicles, and livestock, and all in a disarray that obscured the prevailing flow of traffic. Undaunted, the truck zoomed along one street, then turned into another after 20 minutes pulling up to an unexpectedly spacious modern building of three floors where, extricating myself from our transportation, I spied our monks already scrambling out of another vehicle and heading up the stairs, clearly quite at home in familiar surroundings. We were, in fact, at the Yangon Sidugu Center near Bailey Bridge, a place that would become quite familiar surroundings also for me over the next 13 months. Here we were each assigned a surprisingly modern room and allowed to rest for a few hours before our flight up to Mandalay in central Myanmar that afternoon. For the next month, we would undertake a whirlwind tour of the land of pagodas, the pace particularly with Ashin Ariadama, as chief pacemaker was relentless. We traveled up Myanmar and down from side to side. We traveled from Chalta Beach on the Andaman Sea to the height of Mount Popo, where hungry monkeys panhandled for corn through the hot and arid central region around Mandalay, once home of kings, to the higher elevation of Meimyo, built up by the British, who were attracted to its much cooler climate, down to Bagan, an ancient capital famous for its oodles of ancient pagodas, to Inlay Lake, where we took a boat ride across the water, while gulls panhandled for corn, 
to the remote Kassapa state part bordering on India, where we visited a cave that Maha Kassapa, an important disciple of the Buddha, was said to have dwelt, and where we rode elephants. We visited Ashin Ariyadama's hometown, where he is considered a local hero because of his fundraising efforts on behalf of the local school, at which little green-clad schoolgirls danced in greeting, with pom-poms in hand and music in air as we arrived. We visited one of the largest Buddha statues in the world, standing 380 feet. The elevator did not work, and we proceeded only about 40 feet by stair. We traveled by private car, for which we hired a driver, then for longer trips by stylish Japanese long-distance buses, each with a TV at front, allowing the passengers to view Burmese music videos and situation comedies as they sat in crowded comfort. Sometimes we traveled by car and, for shorter distance, by horse cart or trailered motorcycle. We stayed overnight at monasteries, where we generally slept on a straw mat over a piece of plywood, or in people's houses where we were bedeviled by mosquitoes, or in deluxe international hotels, which were largely empty of fearful tourists. Our many drivers sped through little towns with surprising speed, given how incoherent the traffic appeared to me. However, everyone seemed to know to give cars the right of way. Even the chickens, pigs, and water buffalo seemed to understand the traffic patterns better than I. Each town through which we passed was usually just a muddy or dusty coalescing of a few tiny open-air shops, always including a tea shop where people indulged in that beverage until the wee hours at night and generally with a bright golden pagoda nearby set back from the road. Gas stations displayed plastic bottles of that automotive beverage, each enough to fill a motor scooter, but also possessed large drums of the stuff which two people would have to carry out on demand to a customer's car and pour into his gas tank with the aid of a funnel. Almost all houses in Myanmar are basically wicker baskets, thin but rigid structures of bamboo and straw with thatched roofs, simple holes for doors and windows, sometimes with a wooden flap but no glass, and an outhouse in the back. Farmers plowed the fields with oxen, oxen that would also pull carts of families or produce into town. I was struck by the great reverence shown to the monks. And the monks were everywhere, in every city, in every village, sometimes apparently running some private errand, at other times in a row, mindfully carrying alms bowls, sometimes riding in any of the many means of transportation we had experienced. There are half a million monks in Myanmar, and about one-third as many nuns, the latter generally in pink. We visited many monasteries, met many young and senior monks, the latter with much bowing and assuming of lower seats. Wherever we went, I was introduced as an American Mahayana priest 
who is about to be ordained as a Theravada monk. Each time after I and the other members of our party dropped to the floor to perform the many proper bows, I could catch the words American and Mahayana and sometimes Zen among the stream of Burmese words, shortly after which the generally elder Sierro, venerable teacher, would turn along with everyone else's gaze to scrutinize me and make a proclamation in Burmese, which was quickly translated into English. These proclamations varied widely. This was at one end of the spectrum. You should read the Buddha's discourse on the 62 erroneous views. None of these erroneous views, it turns out, actually characterizes the Mahayana. This was at the other end of the spectrum. Mahayana Buddhism is perfectly good Buddhism. This last was from the 93-year-old head of the Shwajin Nikaya, the second biggest Theravada sect in Myanmar, and was delivered with a refreshingly puzzled expression. Others would offer specific advice. Don't ever eat meat. This one surprised me since almost all Theravada monks, in contrast to the Mahayana norm, will eat meat if it's offered. The reason has to do with the monastic obligation to accept donations graciously. I played devil's advocate. What if it's offered with good intentions? Isn't it unkind to refuse it? If a lay person offered you a glass of alcohol, would you accept it? Uh, no. It's the same with meat. Don't eat meat. In the end, the party ended up in Sagang Hills in central Myanmar across the river from Mandalay, where a monastic college, the Sidigu International Buddhist Academy, is located, where I would spend several months. There, I first encountered the famous founder of the Sidigu organization, Ashin Dr. Nyanissara, at that time in his mid-70s, known for his preaching and his huge social welfare projects. As one of the most famous preachers in Myanmar, he was also in a rather unique position to raise funds and organize projects to address many of the acute needs of Burmese society. One of the first needs he identified was that for running water in the Sagang Hills. He organized a huge project whereby water was pumped up from the Irrawaddy River to holding tanks, then distributed through pipes throughout Sagang Hills for free. During the 1988 student uprising in Myanmar, he had delivered a Dharma talk throughout Myanmar on the responsibilities of kings that the BBC broadcast on their Burmese language program and that subsequently went viral among owners of cassette recorders. This strong criticism of the military government forced him into exile, which he spent primarily in Nashville, Tennessee. The generals suffer a perpetual public relations nightmare, unpopular with the vast majority of the populace because of their brutality and corruption 
They are even now, as I speak, engaged in a brutal civil war with their people. But in calmer times, they invited the highly popular monk to return under the agreement, You leave me alone, and I will leave you alone. This put him in a unique position to engage in social work with little government interference in a land notorious for corruption, pilfering, and self-enrichment on the part of generals and bureaucrats. Consequent to the water distribution project, he founded over 20 hospitals in Myanmar and established a program for rotating foreign surgeons to serve stints, established two monastic academies, and helped found the monastery in Austin, Texas, where my own path first intersected with that of Burmese monks. He also had set up a massive relief organization in response to the devastation caused by Cyclone Nargis in the Irrawaddy Delta region along the coast of Myanmar, while the generals did no more than severely restrict international aid. Yanistara's latest project, the Second Annual Conference of Theravada Buddhist Universities, was about to take place at the academy, and we would attend at the barely completed new convocation center on the campus of the academy, which would house the plenary sessions of the conference. Suddenly a flood of monks, nuns, and scholars from all over the Buddhist world arrived. The conference was arranged like many of the academic conferences I had attended in one of my careers, and much like the ones I had personally organized. It had plenary sessions and then simultaneous subsessions on topics from Pali language, Winia, and Abhidhamma to engaged Buddhism and the current state of Buddhism in many Buddhist minority lands, such as my own. I met many interesting people, such as the African monk, Venerable Buddha Rakita of Uganda, Venerable Nandisena of Mexico, monks of India, some dangerously outspoken Burmese dissidents, many Thai and Sinhalese monks mixed in with those of northern Mahayana lands, a variety of lay people, including Sidi Gusieto's American disciples, Paula, Happy, Lee, and Jennifer, who had first met the Sierra during his Nashville days. Also from America had come the Sinhalese monk, Bhante G. Gunaratana, author of the runaway classic on meditation, mindfulness, and plain English. Ten years Nyanissara's senior, Bhante G. was treated with great reverence by all. Two days after the conference was Ashin Yanissara's birthday, an annual occasion of much circumstance and pomp. Each year, he invited 1,000 monks and 1,000 nuns to participate along with a gauntlet of many hundreds of lay people snaking around the monastery grounds who would make offerings to the monastics as they passed by. Offered were soap, toothpaste, toothbrushes, towels, blankets, incense, candles, 
disposable lighters, more soap, containers of fruit drinks, tamarind candy, notepads, pencils, small books, calendars, envelopes, more soap, flashlights, money in envelopes, and soap. Each monk or nun was assigned a kapia, usually a young man who would hold a big plastic bag into which the monastic hand would drop items as they were offered. The first monks in line would receive more substantial gifts until these ran out. For instance, battery-operated wall clocks with Nyanissara's picture on the face went to perhaps the first 100 monks. I was scheduled to be ordained on the very morning of this event, March 10th, 2009. You're going to become a what? You're going to do everything on purpose that everyone else is trying hard to avoid, like discipline, commitments, sitting on the floor, noble silence, wearing a bedsheet in public, and waking up before dawn? All this so that you can renounce everything that everyone else thinks makes life worth living? Like entertainment, parties, lavish food, singing and dancing, wine, women, and song, fast cars and fast women, gossip, strong opinions, being right? self-promotion, self-adornment, revenge, late nights, a vacation house in Belize, tequila sunrises on the beach with an awesome woman, spiffy clothes, and hair? What are you thinking? These were questions of my own mind, raised anew for the umpteenth time in many years, even though they had long been answered. You see, it replied to itself, we are born into a looking-glass world. The looking-glass world in which virtually everyone lives is a preposterous world of misperception. Left is right and right is left. Forward is backward. Outside is inside. What is alluring is generally too hot to handle. Things are not really as they seem in the looking-glass world. A monk or a nun is someone who is willing to break the bonds of attachment to step boldly out through the looking-glass to inhabit, as a matter of vow, bodily, verbally, and mentally, the world as it actually is. As perplexing as this sounds, the no-frills life on the less inhabited side of the looking-glass is one of great ease and fulfillment, no longer trampled underfoot by the vicissitudes of soap-operatic existence. The flower of awakening naturally thrives there. Although it's easy to ordain, it's difficult to remain in robes, if one cannot step through the looking-glass. To step through the looking-glass requires certain qualities of character, seclusion, discipline, reflection, and resolve. Seclusion is to step back 
to disengage from the soap opera of life. Discipline is needed not to stray from what is proper to the practice. Reflection is a necessary basis for developing an unbiased awareness of things as they are. Resolve is to give form and direction to an otherwise amorphous and wishy-washy life. Each is necessary to step out through the looking glass. Immediately after my ordination, one of the Burmese monks would ask me what felt different. I would reply, I know what I am. He would nod knowingly and be pleased with my answer. But after thinking about it, I would realize that my answer would not quite have gotten to the heart of it. 